evening, Hope Church. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I would love to afterwards. I hope you do stick around for our, for our Q&A as well that we'll be having. You've found us in the middle of our, our series on Romans chapter 8. And has it been a blessing? How good is the Word of God? And especially such sharp, such focused, such rich and filled with promise sort of texts like Romans 8 where we, could, we can just let it fly and all, uh, all be blessed and glorify God for the goodness of the gospel. So far, Romans 8 has taken us on, on, on uh, three steps of our journey from verse 1 through to uh, uh, verse 17 as we closed out last week, uh, uh, rather 4, sorry. And, and our questions so far have been this. Uh, as you read through Romans and you get to Romans 7, you're left pretty depressed. And you're meant to feel the burning and the, the desire for glorification. That is a, another word for our resurrection in the future when Jesus comes back and all of the saints are resurrected into our final, eternal, immortal, glorified state. And Romans 7 finishes out with this burn of, I hate my sin, I feel my guilt, and I feel powerless to do anything about it. I see my sin, I feel my sin, I feel the guilt of my sin, and I feel powerless against my sin. And what Romans 8 then starts to knock down one pin at a time is each of those hopeless pins, each of those uh, foundation stones in the, in the hopelessness that Romans 7 sort of paints of the Christian who does not know your inheritance in the gospel. And so first of all, to the, to the sense that the Christian says, I feel my guilt... I think that if God is a righteous God, and if I look at my own life, even, even as I continue to live, and uh, I feel that I am condemned under God's law, and I can't do anything about it. And Romans 8 verse 1 says, No, you are not condemned in Jesus Christ, because though you deserve death, Jesus has died for you. That is the good news of the gospel. You are justified, in fact. You've been given his righteousness. When God the Father looks at you, he sees his son. When God the Father looks at you, he sees perfect righteousness according to the law. So no, you must not feel condemned anymore or have a feeling of your ongoing guilt anymore. Then we say, well, but I hate my sin and I feel powerless against my sin. And verse 5 to 11 gave us the very good news that not only does God forgive you, he also changes your nature so that you're not in the flesh anymore, you're in the spirit. And not only that, but the Spirit is also in you. You've got Jesus' resurrection Spirit imparted to you, and He will change you. You are never powerless. Do not believe the lie that you are weak and hopeless against the onslaught of your sin. You have been given all that you need to live a godly life in Jesus Christ. Last week we learned that we were, uh, as adopted children in God, uh, uh, in Jesus Christ, adopted children of God, we've been given His Spirit which makes us act like what we are. That means that we've received the spirit of adoption, therefore we act like God's children. And what do God's children do? Verse 13 through 16 told us that first they put to death the deeds of the body, and they cry out to God as Father with assurance in their hearts that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so that was where we closed out last week. Look at, look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. And if we are children, then we are heirs. 
We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means we're receiving rightly and justly because of Jesus the full inheritance that Jesus has deserved. We're on his will. We're with him on the records in heaven. His inheritance in eternity is our inheritance also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. At the very height of the great promises that he's been giving us in Romans 8, he does switch back to just remind us that this is a two-stage application of the inheritance. He says, I know I've told you, you're forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit. Your nature is changed. Glory is coming. You have the inheritance, but it's not all coming right now. There is suffering in this life. This is what theologians call the, the now. The, the right now inheritance of Jesus Christ is the spirit, is a new heart, is an ability to live after his laws, though not perfectly. However, the not yet part is when our body becomes glorified, is when the world around us is even resurrected, washed clean of the curse and, and eradicated of sin. And that is what is not yet. Now we have the spirit then we will have everything. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14 says that the Spirit now is our down payment, a deposit. You think this is good? You think the gift of assurance and the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit is good? You have not seen anything yet. It is just the, 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 the deposit and down payment. There is much yet to come, and that's where Romans 8 from verse 18 onwards starts to focus in again. All right, we've got ourselves back on the ground. My, my feet are planted again. I have this glorious inheritance to come. But right now is the suffering, then the glory. I will inherit the glory provided we suffer with Jesus now in order that we might be glorified with him. The great question of tonight is, I feel, and, and maybe this is, this is your experience, maybe this is exactly the mindset in which you dragged your sorry soul to sit down here tonight in. The state of this. I feel like there is so much suffering against me in this world. Is that not a testimony that God is against me? Is that not a testimony that I'm not actually a child of God? What God, what child of God would be in this relationship of so much suffering? That's the question we ask tonight. Why do the children of God... Glorious, inheriting promises in Jesus. Why do we still suffer? Look at Romans 8, verse 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Who's, who's here sitting here tonight saying, I hope we open up the Bible. I hope I'm at church. I hope the lights were. It's already evident by sight. You don't need to hope that. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May God bless his own word in our midst this afternoon. <laughs> Suffering is our lot in this world. Though adopted, there is suffering for the children of God in this world. We're going to discover the reality of suffering in this world, the reason for suffering in this world, and the relationship of suffering to our souls in this world. First, the absolute reality. Yes, Christian, you will suffer in this world. Look again at verse 17. He does not make your suffering a condition for your inheriting the promises. Rather, he makes your suffering in this world a part of your inheritance along with glory. So we can say then that suffering for the Christian is absolutely necessary to go to heaven. And we're not saying that it's causative. We're not saying that it gets you glory. We're saying that it is as necessary as glory because both of them are wrapped up in the gift called the inheritance of God to those in Christ Jesus. So verse 17 says, And if heirs, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. He ties suffering and glory so closely together you can't have one without the other as, as preachers want to get up and promise you the, the blessings and the health and the wealth and the glory is of children of God they are only faithful if they remind you also of the suffering of the death of the persecution of the killing your sin that is necessary for the children of God and yet as you get morose and morbose and depressed and think of the suffering in this life and the persecution among those you love and you just want to share Christ with them, remember also there is glory on the other side of that coin. Everybody who suffers will be glorified, but everybody who will be glorified must go through suffering. Verse 18 says it as well, that the sufferings of this present time, that they're just characteristic of this present world until Jesus comes back. Verse 23 reiterates the same thing. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait. So that it is not just the suffering. Part of what makes suffering so difficult as a Christian is that we know what's coming. And so we're waiting eagerly. We, we are suffering and that's bad enough, but then we're also constantly comparing it with what we think we could have if if he was just so merciful enough as to kill us. If you haven't felt that way yet, give it time. God will send that blessing of persecution and suffering into your life to feel it. We, we, we suffer and we groan. But, so that may be through, through sin, the, the suffering that sin causes in your own soul. The suffering that must be going through in order to kill the sin of your soul. In order to put away the deeds of the flesh. There is, there is lost sleep. There is sacrifices that must be made. Not only sin, but also sickness and injury. Few people have not been touched heavily by that in their life, either themselves or those near them. Difficult labor 
and ministry fatigue that comes from serving Jesus Christ. Sacrifices for the gospel that are made by the faithful Christian. This is our suffering. Emotional pain, heartbreak and disappointment as people betray you or as horrible situations occur around you. And of course, eventually, death. All of these things are a part and parcel of our inheritance in this world. Don't, don't see it as, a, as, a, as an addendum or a necessary evil to the inheritance, not a distraction to the inheritance. Your suffering is with Christ. Therefore, even your suffering is a part of what Jesus purchased you. The ability to walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. But not only are Christians suffering in this way, Paul also makes the case that, that this is so natural to this world because the creation, the physical world itself, was also cursed and groans and suffers. And so he, 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 he personifies creation. Creation here is, does not include Christians, it's, it's the subhuman realm. All of the animals, the, all of the, 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 the landscape, the physical world that God created and put under Adam's feet, it also groans. And so he says this in verse 19 and 20, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait for Jesus' return. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, right? Creation didn't put up its hand and ask to be the curse, didn't ask to be the mass graveyard that it now is to innumerable human bodies. It didn't ask for that, but God subjected it. He is the one who subjected it. It says it was not subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God Cursed under because of Adam's sin and under his headship, the whole of the created world, where where creation was supposed to be the stage upon which human beings imaged and glorified God. It is now the ugly canvas that sin is splattered all over. Creation doesn't like that. Instead of creation, the, the stars and the mountains and the beautiful animals. Instead of them being images that, that, and, and road signs that point humankind to the glory of their creator, sadly, and, and you could picture it, even against its own will, creation is worshipped. Birds are worshipped. The stars are worshipped. The, the mountains are worshipped. What an what a, what a inward trial the whole globe is undergoing as the people who image its creator are worshipping it rather than its creator. The creation is groaning. I, I thought of this as we were even hiking hardly and very difficultly and thinning oxygen and for a not underweight asthmatic, that made it difficult in Nepal. And as we were hiking and we were going a kilometer between each house just to have a few moments to preach Christ to, to poor villagers who'd never heard the name of Jesus, didn't know much more in life other than farming their, their, their grain out on their own countryside and that the, the communist uh, uh, government uh, 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 dispatches would come out every couple of months. Other than that, that's the world to them. 
and what made them so difficult to reach with the good news of the gospel of their creator was the mountains, the rivers, and the disease. Do you see that creation unwillingly has been used as an instrument against the glory of God? And and it's as if the mountains are, are waiting for a day for a church to be planted on it, and it can sigh the sigh of relief. Finally, I've been redeemed back to my glorious purpose. I've stopped being a barricade against the gospel, a a difficulty for Christians to have to overcome, and and I am again the the, the mountains that give glory to God. Creation has been unwillingly subjected to futility. It is the stage upon which death, violence, war has been enacted. It is ruled, we see in the Old Testament and more explicitly in the New, it is ruled by the demonic realm, and worshipped by mankind. In fact, even upon its own soil was its own creator butchered. On the death of Jesus Christ, the ground itself convulsed. There was an earthquake. The, the sun itself blocked out. It sh- could not shine its rays upon such a horrible, inconsistent, illogical, immoral act against its own creator. Creation is convulsing. We see this in its uh, uh, natural disasters and its malfunctions. Jesus uses this language also. It is like childbirth. But the hopeful thing is here that Paul says it's the pains of childbirth. Now, if you're pregnant, uh, just recently given, a ch- given birth to a child, you, or have any recollection of that at all, you don't think of childbirth as a positive thing. But here's the difference. He's saying it's the pains the world is going through is childbirth pain, not death pain. Death pain goes downwards and then death. Childbirth gets worse and worse and worse and then life and joy. And you forget how much you were crying. You forget the pain and the horror you were just undergoing with the the tearing of everything and the soul-rending pain. There is life now. That's what he calls the the natural disasters of the world. Yes, it is is in the pains and the throes of death, but but it's, it's life coming through the death. So suffering is our lot. Suffering is the world's lot, uh, the creation's lot also. But on the other end of that, we also see the, the equal and opposite reality of glory. Look back at verse 17. We're we're drilling down into our mind all of the parallel realities of suffering and glory. You take one of them, you will have a a half, a a, a full Christian cup. You will have a half-formed Christian mindset. You will either be depressed with the reality of suffering or naive with only the promise of glory. Verse 17. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Look at verse 19. As we speak of glory, which verse 17 mentioned, the being glorified with him, I want to just clarify in case there's any outliers in our midst this this afternoon. By glory, Paul does not just mean heaven, though that is a a step closer to glory. Paul does not just mean uh, uh, a disembodied, eternal floating on clouds. What Paul means by glory, and therefore what a lot of theologians have termed the state of glory, or the the eternal state rather than the intermediate state between death 
and glory. What we mean by glory is the days after our resurrection. Now, we might disagree on what happens when Jesus comes back and when a kingdom is established and who gets resurrected when, but here is the ground upon what, which all orthodox eschatology is laid, is that in the end, Jesus will have his people not merely broken away from our dead bodies, but also inheriting a new, resurrected, glorified body just like his. John, 1 John chapter 3 says that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, so, so our resurrection body, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, will just be a version of Jesus' body, but it'll look like you. I don't know whether it'll look like the you now. For some of you, that's good. For some of you, you'd love to keep this face. I don't know. But for, for whatever we will look like, it will be you but it will have all the same attributes as Jesus' body. And I need to just inform some of us who are ignorant of this now. Jesus is currently, presently, in heaven with a body. He's the only one there with a body. He has a glorified body. No one else has a glory. In other words, you read a book and it tells you about how a little boy went up to heaven and he saw everybody in the prime of their youth. His father's a publishing liar because no one has a body in heaven. But you should have known that. Yeah, that's that's paper, toilet paper or kindling for your fire. Don't read those books. Heaven is not our glorious eternal state. It is the intermediate state. It's where our souls go after we die, but before Jesus comes back to resurrect and recreate everything. So by glory we mean, when you hear glory, think the resurrection. The resurrected state of us and the whole world we will inhabit. Look at verse 21. There's all these, uh, sorry, verse 19. There's all these parallel phrases that Paul, the, the master theologian, just throws all these phrases together, and all of them are meaning the same thing, the resurrection of our bodies for glory. Look at verse 19. He calls it the revealing of the sons of God at the end of the verse. What the creation's waiting for is the revealing of the sons of God. And we say, well, doesn't the creation currently look at us and see what sons of God look like? And we say, well, well, no, because the creation talks in terms of physical things, and physically we have not received the adoption of our bodies. We don't look like, physically yet inhabit, that which is rightfully belonging to the children of God. Our, our spirits are, but, but not yet our bodies. So the future glorification can be called the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 21. It also calls it being set free from its bondage to corruption. That's what will happen to our bodies. Our bodies will be set free from their bondage to corruption in this world. So also the, the creation will experience the same thing. Or at the end of verse 21 obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what the resurrection is. Us finally obtaining the freedom that you don't have now. I'm never ever going to tell you, just follow your heart. It'll lead to goodness. Never going to say that. Realizing glory though, we can say that. You go, I wonder how to glorify God right now. And you can say to one another, do whatever you feel like. You don't, have the, you don't have the ability to feel the wrong thing. You're glorified. Isn't that a freeing thought? I'm looking forward to, that makes, I don't, there won't be pastors in heaven. There'll be no job to do. How do I counsel people how to glorify? Just do whatever the heck you want. That's not how I pastor now. 
So that is, that is the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. Or verse 23 calls it the adoption of sons. We are waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons. And you say, well, but aren't we adopted as sons? So, well, yes, of course we are. But we need to remember the distinction we've constantly been making in Romans 8. The legal verdict in heaven and then my actual lived experience. In heaven, I'm justified and perfect legally. In my experience, I'm still a sinner. That's why Martin Luther used to say, simul ustus et peccator. At the same time, simultaneous, a sinner and righteous. Ust, righteous. Peccator meaning Latin for sin. At the same time, you are in God's court, righteous, and in your experience, a sinner. And yet, the reality in which we are adopted sons of God is a spiritual fact that we have his power and can put sin to death, but not perfectly. And so if we ask the question, aren't we already adopted as sons? The very next phrase gives us more clarity as to what he means. The end of verse 23, our resurrection is the adoption as sons, in brackets, the redemption of our bodies. Your soul has been redeemed and recreated, Your body has been redeemed in the sense that Jesus owns it and you must glorify him with it, but this version of us is on loan and soon Jesus is going to completely renovate it. He's going to kill it and then recreate it. And in that sense, the redemption of our bodies in resurrection, glory, is still to come, but we look forward to it with hope. Or in verse 17, we can go back to the last phrase in verse 17. This is the key phrase. This is what underlines everything else. This is what makes resurrection, resurrection. This is what makes glory glorious, is that we are being glorified with him. This comes back to our constant theme that all of salvation is union with Christ. Your justification is union with Christ touching his righteousness. Your adoption is union with Christ touching his sonship. Your being in the spirit is union with Christ touching his nature and power. Your having the Holy Spirit is union with Christ touching his inheritance of the spirit without measure. Your glorification is just another step of your union with Christ touching his inheritance of glory and immortality. Resurrection, we will be unified with him in resurrection Or as Paul says, we will be glorified with him. This is the key. This is underlying all of the future for the Christian, is that we will be glorified with our Savior. And then we can look thirdly to the relationship now, or or rather the reason that suffering occurs. In one sense, look at verse 20, we suffer because of sin. But we don't suffer because of sin. All good? Can we move on? That's pretty clear. Look at verse 20. It reminds us of the fall, Genesis 3. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, this is Paul commenting and explaining Genesis 3, verse 17 to 18. He's saying the reason there is suffering is because the world is subjected to futility. Now, why is the world subjected to futility? Because of Adam's sin. So in that sense, all of our suffering is downstream of the causes of sin. 
But that doesn't mean that all of our suffering is because of personal sin. As if every time you suffer or struggle or get a bad diagnosis or, or a, a, a delayed payment that you need to think, which sin caused this? Because God promised if I'm righteous, then all will be well with me. Rather, this is just Paul explaining Genesis 3. To Adam, God said after, the, after his sin, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Do you see that all of creation is under Adam's headship as, Hebrew, as, cha, as Psalm cha, chapter 8 tells us? It was cursed through him. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to the dust you shall return. In the first Adam, the first head, the first leader, the first champion, the first king of the human race and all creation. In him, sin came into the world and through him and his sin, everything died. Adam lost everything that could possibly have been lost. He lost this world. He lost the entrance back to the garden. He lost the opportunity for eternal life. He lost everything but by the grace of God who sent a second representative of the human race, who sent a second champion, a second king, a second Adam, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And therefore what all was cursed and lost in Adam, Jesus Christ comes and redeems, reconciles, and resurrects in his due time. And we see this hinted at in verse 21. Uh, sorry, in verse 20. Almost the whole verse is about the curse. The last two words are about the proto-evangelion. That is the first preaching of the gospel, where God, God foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Let's read it again, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope. Whose hope is that? The hope is not Adam's hope. He was not the one who subjected it. The hope belongs to the will of the one who subjected, which is God. This is God's hope. But Paul is kind of humanizing or anthropomorphizing God here and saying, we can attribute to God a kind of human way of thinking. That God subjected the world to futility. He cursed it. He doused it in death. He sent it towards an eventual judgment in hope. He had not given up on the world. Your suffering is not an evidence that God has given up on this mortal world, has given up on the physical creation, and one day we'll all just have a spiritual world. No, he subjected it because he was telling a glorious story. He subjected it in hope. Look at verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. This is what Paul gets at in, a late, in, in another letter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, God subjected this world to futility because he was bringing it back. He was drawing back the world in the curse because he was going to slingshot it forward in glory. 1 Corinthians 15. 
verse 20 to 23. If in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Do you see that this revolutionizes? When you get a correct view of glory to come and the fall at the beginning, this revolutionizes how you think about the resurrection. It wasn't just one man's resurrection. It was the beginning to glory and new creation. It was the beginning of the rest of eternity. Jesus first and then the rest of us. Listen. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. He's first, which means there's more to come. Says verse 21. As by one man came death, that's Adam, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also all in Christ shall be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to him. Jesus is the beginning of the rest of the world. What he was in his resurrection, we also will be at his return. But the painful phrase Paul says here, which, which is why he had to write chapter 8 of Romans, was but each in its own time. You get resurrection. You get glory. It's just not our time yet. It is yet to come. And so onward we suffer. All of the Christian worldview, your view of history, and even as Romans 8 tells us, your Christian assurance actually hinges on your eschatology. And I don't mean that, that you need to have a particular view of the millennium. What I mean is the deeper, more glorious eschatology that all true Christians hold, which is that one day Jesus will come back and give to us glory. If you don't have that, you have at best a third of the gospel and you have no true hope or assurance. This is our hope, the becoming like Jesus in glory. Verse 24 in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, and then comes the end. When Jesus resurrects us all, then comes the end. When he delivers to the, the, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Friends, is Jesus Christ reigning now? Yes. But he is reigning in the midst of his enemies, Psalm 110. There are still enemies to be defeated. And one day there is a day when they will all be put under his feet. The last enemy, verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Every other enemy goes on and then dies, but death only dies at Jesus' return. That is, as long as God is doing a redeeming work in this world, death will be given the ability to continue to throw punches because resurrection was a part of God's plan. He sent death so that we would know what resurrection is. He subjected the creation in futility because he planned to resurrect it. God, re if we could say it this way, God required death to show us what resurrection is. God used the evil in order to establish his own righteous ends. Our hope is the new creation consummated under Christ's headship in glory. Verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. He's talking about your body being like a seed. What is sown into the ground is perishable, but what is raised on resurrection day, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Therefore it is written, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also we are who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So when a Christian asks the question, when a Christian says, why am I suffering? A theological way you could also ask that question is to say, why do I experience all of Adam's curses? To say, why am I suffering? What you're in other words asking is, why do I bear the image of the man of dust? And Paul says, we bear the image of the man of dust so that we might also bear the image of the man from heaven. For God came into dust, died the death of the men of dust, and then rose victoriously to certify and assure and secure our resurrection up out of the dust. That is, that is, that is the central phrase of this whole passage is there in there at the end of verse 20. In hope the world was, was subjected. Or, or we can look at the end, of, uh, <coughs> the end of verse 24. For in this hope, the beginning of verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. The whole theme of your life as a Christian is in hope. Which 24 and 25 tell us necessarily means there's a lot that is currently unseen. I'm saved in faith. I'm saved trusting there's more to come. That's what it means to be saved in hope. Our whole salvation is in hope, but what a glorious hope we have. So, so what is the relationship then as a Christian between me and my suffering? Romans 8 tells us. First of all, we have three things to say. First of all, it stretches your hope. You were saved in hope. Your suffering is not apart from that. It is a part of that. You were saved in hope and suffering stretches your hope. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, with all its earthquakes, with all of its natural disasters and storms, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. You have the Spirit, which assures you that glory is to come, but that means that every second... And every day of this life, you groan being stretched forward to glory. You, you, it's, it's like spiritual inertia. You, you want to get there right now, but your, your whole natural body is keeping you back and you feel it. And, and therefore, what, what suffering does is it takes this hope you were saved in. 
Now, if you died the day after you, you, you came to Jesus Christ, your hope is short-lived, very, very, very contracted. But if you live like most Christians do, years and decades after your conversion, then what that suffering does is stretch out your hope to, to, to fling you into glory. It stretches your hope with the inward groaning and storms. Secondly, suffering strengthens your hope. Look at verse 24 and 25. It stretches our hope, making us more and more desperate, but it also strengthens our hope, making us more and more sure. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. This is another version of Paul saying, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by hope, not by seeing. If we have no hope, then that means everything God wants to give us, we already have and can see. And I hope that's not true. I hope there's more that I can't see. I hope there's glory to come. I hope there's a sufferingless existence. I hope that there's a sinless existence. And it is, we were saved in hope. Verse 25 but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If this is true, Paul, if this is true, Christian, and, and we've been saved and there's much to come and it's between now and glory that I'm waiting through suffering, then it establishes my heart. It forces me to be secure and stable in God's promises and find my joy not in experiences but in God's word, and I can learn to sit in it and wait for it with patience. Suffering secures your hope and strengthens your hope. But we can say thirdly, that suffering escalates our hope. And for this, go back to verse 18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Imagine he said a different thing. Imagine he said, the glories that are to come, or, or say it another way, the glories of this world are not worth comparing to the glories to come. But you live in Logan. So you go, I can believe that. That's very believable. The glories of this world and what I see, it's going to be better than this. I would, I would expect so, and I hope so. But then I take it to Grand Canyon. And you say, it's not worth comparing to this? No, not worth comparing. And then I take you to the most beautiful mountains in the, in the, in the heights of China. And, and, and you look at the beautiful tree-covered land, and you, and you say, it's not, this is not worth comparing to that? I say, not worth comparing to the glories to be revealed to us. And I take you to the most glorious galaxies to overlook them all, and you say, this is still not worth comparing to the glory that is to come? So, so that as the more you see the glory of this world the more the, the expectation of glory to come is escalated. But he doesn't say that. He says an even harder thing, which is that he says, the heights and depths of your suffering are not even going to be worth comparing to the glories to come. And so we go to our diagnosis, and you read that, and you say, this is not even going to be worth comparing with what is to come. Not even worth comparing. And you sit at the hospital bed as somebody you love goes through the end stages of death and withers away. And you say, not even worth comparing and not even worth comparing. 
and you go through the, the terrors and horrors of the worst things that sin in this world can throw at you, and even there, Paul holds your hand through Romans 8 and says, this is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Meaning then, the more that we suffer, the greater our hope escalates. If our glory is always beyond compare and we don't suffer much, then we go, yeah, okay, I can imagine it's better than this and then I'll probably forget about the hardships and the splinter and my mean private school teacher and my, my, my annoying fabric softener that gives me the itchies. Third world problems, I hope, I hope it's better than this. But when you go through the depths of suffering, your suffering is preaching to you and is in fact increasing and escalating the hope and your expectation of what glory will be. Paul said, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He demands us to ask the question, how could we know what healing is but to know the pains of a disease? How can we know what eternal life is but to know now death and mortality? How can we know what forgiveness is but to feel the pain of guilt? How will we know what perfect obedience is unless we know sinful failure right now? How would I know the beauty of glory unless I know the ugliness of a cursed world? How would I know blessing but to have experienced the curse? There's an old hymn, and it's called Christ the Sh not, not that old, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. And it's, it's a song about the, the pains of this world being a storm, but Christ being the anchor that holds beyond the veil. Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. In the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in my suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, Deeper still, then, goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. He will never be removed. Here's the final verse. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon Clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. Glory will be better because of the suffering that you have undergone. Christ is a sweeter Savior the deeper your suffering has been tasted in this world. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory as long as you are in Jesus Christ by faith. And every promise of all of Romans 8 needs to be shredded and put in the basket of hopelessness if you do not now have faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not come to the end of your own self, 
recognize your own sin and guilt, and then turn to Jesus, who is God become man, who died for you as your only payment for sin, and rose again as the gateway to eternal life. And if you have not called on him and trusted in him alone to save you, then there is no glory coming. There is no glory that is being made better by suffering. This is as close to heaven as you get. Your suffering is leading you to a worse suffering. Your struggles are leading you to judgment and condemnation in hell. But that need not be the case of anybody who hears these words tonight. If you're a sinner, Jesus is for you, held out and commended to you by the Father. He wills to forgive. He invites you to glory. Trust now in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. We cannot fathom what glory will be. We cannot fathom the joy of the experience of being freed to obtain the the glory of the sons of God. We, We cannot even imagine what it will be like to have perfect bodies, minds, souls, affections. Well, Lord God, our, our anchor is this. It will be like Jesus, and that is enough for us. We will be with Jesus, and that is enough for us. We will, we will see him as he is and become like him, and that is the seed and the kernel and the core of all of our joy. Father God, I pray that you would anchor us to Jesus, anchor us to the hope of the inheritance of glory that is in him and preserve us through all of life's struggles. And I pray that if anybody is not connected to that anchor, if they are a a, a ship that is tossed to and fro in the waves of this world, being battered, uh, and they have only condemnation before them, then God, would you connect them to Jesus Christ, the anchor, that they might be drawn and pulled to the safety of the refuge of Jesus and glory forevermore beyond death. Father God, we pray that you save those in our midst who do not know Jesus and that you preserve us who know him. We thank you for Jesus and for his glory and everybody who knows him as Savior said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.